All right. <clears throat> Good. See you guys again. So, we are continuing on in our series in the Gospel of John. But before I get into that, I was reading this week uh, about the human brain. Okay, now I'm not a scientist, but I love reading like scientific conclusions because they teach me stuff about the world. That's what science is there for. And it was talking about neuroplasticity. Okay, some of you I'm sure understand this better than I do. But essentially it's this idea that when you have a behavior and it gets repeated, then the neurons in your brain that fire signals that way become more and more efficient at that behavior. And it gets to the point where sort of these permanent bridges get built between the neural pathways in your brain. So when you practice something again and again and again, your brain doesn't even really need to think about it. It just kind of does it. It's automatic. This is how like muscle memory works in sport. You know, you practice your, your putting or your drive like, you know, 10,000 times and eventually it, it just becomes automatic. Okay. And your brain's really, really good with this sort of stuff. The problem is, is that it doesn't just work with positive things and good behaviors, it also does this with negative behaviors. So when you practice something like thankfulness, you can train your brain to sort of automatically respond with thankfulness and gratefulness towards good things. However, if you complain all the time, it will also rewire your brain so it becomes easier and easier to complain all the time. And eventually over time, being negative kind of becomes your default setting if this is what you do again and again and again. And even if you receive neutral news or positive news or even the best news, your brain has been so hardwired to receive, to respond to things negatively that you'll find the flaw, you'll find the problem, you won't have a thankful attitude, you'll still be finding a way to be negative about it. And there's even some research that suggests that, you know, long term, this has serious health uh, effects for us and can affect memory and attitude and all sorts of different stuff like this. So, so the way that we respond and this idea about, you know, complaining and grumbling, which we're going to get into our passage today, it's a, it's a real thing. Like it's something to think about. And we're going to see in this passage how this crowd of people who upon hearing the best news from Jesus respond, not with thanksgiving and praise, but with groaning and murmuring and complaining and it leads them away from Jesus and the words of life that he speaks. And so we're going to think about that, and also what it means for us as Christians, uh, and thinking about how we should respond with complaining and murmuring, and what to do with that. So, as a a quick uh, recap where we've been at so far, we've seen Jesus uh, recently feed 5,000 people in a miraculous way. That crowd of people has followed him across the lake to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, and he has been having a conversation with them, and last week he gave them a crystal clear message. That is, that he is the bread of life, that you don't need physical bread anywhere near as much as you need the bread that I'm providing with you. He says to them, believe in me and have eternal life. He's speaking in a metaphor. I am the bread of life. Okay, It's definitely a metaphor, but that is a super clear meaning because as he keeps on saying, I'm the bread of life, you need this bread. He's also saying, believe in me and have eternal life. It's not a complicated metaphor. right? But the guys that have been listening because of the way that they're listening to Jesus and the mindset that they're bringing to this, instead of responding with faith and thankfulness, they respond in a different way. It says, at this, the Jews there began to grumble about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. 
They said, Is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How can he now say, I came down from heaven? Jesus has been saying, I am the bread of life. I've been sent from heaven. I've come down from here. I'm here for you. And on the surface, this seems like a reasonable question. They're thinking, well, hold on. We know your parents, okay? Joseph, carpenter. We know your mum and dad, all right? So how can you be sent from heaven? Now, at first glance, this looks like a reasonable question. Until you remember everything that's come before this, right? That he has done miracles where he has healed people. He's turned water into wine. He has fed 5,000 people. He's been speaking the words of life. This is not the question of a, of a faithful believer seeking understanding. This is a complaining, groaning, murmuring group who are acting not out of faith, but out of doubt and negativity towards him. And so instead of addressing and engaging with them on their question, which I think if they were faithful believers he might have done, he has a different response. Okay, that's all the miracles he's been doing, that sort of stuff. He says, stop grumbling among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them, and I will raise them up at the last day. It is written in the prophets, they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard the Father and learned from him comes to me. No one has seen the Father except the one who is from God. Only he has seen the Father. Jesus is essentially saying here, I'm not going to engage with your questions about my human origins because that's not actually the issue. That's not what's going on here. The issue is whether or not my Father is drawing you to me. My message is clear. The the words of God are being spoken. Just like it says in the prophets, they will be taught by God. And the question is, is that you going to listen to the one who has seen God, the only one who has seen God, or are you not? That's really the issue at stake here. He goes on. Very truly, I tell you, the one who believes has eternal life. He's saying the same thing again. Yes, he's going to use metaphor, but it's not like he's obscuring the real meaning here. I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness, yet they died. But here is the bread that comes down from heaven, which anyone may eat and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. You can see it, right? Plain meaning, believe in me, have eternal life. Metaphor, I am the bread of life. There was bread that came down from heaven in the Old Testament. Awesome story. The Israelite people fleeing from Egypt, they start grumbling and complaining. God miraculously provides for them. And Jesus says, you know what, that was great. But you know what the problem was with everyone who ate that bread? They died. Right? That bread that was miraculously provided for them did not stop their death. But now before you stands the bread of life. And if you feed on me, believe in me, then you will have life that endures forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. He's speaking clearly. And yeah, that last line there, that's a little bit more cryptic. Like, this bread is my flesh, which I, I will give for the life of the world. Remember, Jesus hasn't died yet. 
He hasn't really started proclaiming about his death too strongly just yet. So I can understand where him being the bread of life given for the world, that might be a little bit confusing, but that's not the part they get hung up on, is it? Because what does it say? Then the Jews begin, the, the Jews there begin to argue sharply among themselves, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? They don't get hung up on the, what does he mean he's going to give his life for the world part? They get hung up on the metaphor. What could he possibly be talking about? Doesn't that sound so weird? Eating his flesh? It's like, have you guys been listening? This is not a complicated or confusing idea. The reason that they can't understand it is because they're not listening to Jesus with faith. They're refusing to believe. They're doubting. They're complaining. They're murmuring. The problem here is not in Jesus' message. It's in the hearts of those who are hearing. And it's like Jesus says at this point. Alright, you think you missed that metaphor? Let's see how you go with this one. He's just doubling down now on speaking in his metaphor in order to really drive home the point that those who are going to believe are going to hear and understand and those who aren't won't. So he says, Very truly, I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. For my flesh is real food, and my blood is real drink. For whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me, and I in them. Just as the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread come down from heaven. Your ancestors ate manna and died but whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. He said, that he said this while teaching in the synagogue in Capernaum. Now, previously when I've read these verses, right, when I haven't really looked at how chapter 5 and 6 all really fits together, when I've just read these verses in isolation, I've got to admit, I've been pretty sympathetic to the guys who were there listening on that day. I'm like, man... it. It actually looks like Jesus was feeling himself a little bit too much. You know, he got his preach on, he was saying some stuff, and I was like, I I can kind of see how maybe these guys got a little bit freaked out by this. But when you really work it through, when you remember that this is the same crowd that's been seeing him do the healings and seeing him do the miracles, and that he's been saying again and again, I am the bread of life, believe in me, have eternal life. Don't feed just on physical bread, but come to the one who can give you life that lasts Forever. When you see it in that context, alright, even though some of the language is weird, and I admit it's weird, like whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me and I in them, sounds more like a bad vampire novel than the Bible, okay? I get it. But at the same time, in context, understanding what Jesus is doing, seeing the full breadth of this little sermon that he's preaching here, the metaphor is really clear. I'm the bread that you need to feed on. Believing in me is feeding on me. When you believe in me, you receive the life that you need. Don't get hung up on the physical bread. Okay? Whoever comes to me will never hunger and will never thirst because this is the life you really need. Okay? It's not a trick. It's really clear. But I don't think it's an accident that he's doubling down on the metaphor. Because he's saying to them that nobody's going to believe in me unless the Father is drawing them near. And I think that this message is designed to clear away 
all those who aren't there for the right reasons. And it certainly has an effect, right? On hearing it, many of his disciples, the people following him, said, this is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? Now again, like, is it hard? Like, is it really? When you listen with ears and a heart of faith, is it that hard what Jesus is saying? I don't think it really is. It's only hard if your faith is what well, non-existent and your heart is hard and you refuse to believe and trust that he is the one sent from heaven. He is the Son of Man. He is the Son of God. He's the judge that G- the, the God the Father has appointed. He's the only one who's seen the Father. If you believe that part of what he's telling you, then the metaphor is pretty straightforward. It's only if you refuse to believe that he is who he's saying that he is, that this gets tricky and weird and you're like, whoa, eating my flesh, what is he talking about? And Jesus isn't going to have a bar of this idea that the problem is his teaching. They say, this is a hard teaching, who can accept it? He's doubling down on, again, the idea, it's not the teaching that's the problem, guys. It's where you're coming from. Aware that his disciples were grumbling about this, grumbling and complaining again, Jesus said to them, does this offend you? Then what if you see the Son of Man ascend to where he was before? The Spirit gives life. The flesh counts for nothing. The words I have spoken to you, they are full of the Spirit and life. What he's saying is, these words offend you. Meet the idea of me coming down from heaven, everything that I'm, I'm teaching you here and I'm saying to you. What if you see me ascend and go up to heaven, and which is exactly what he's going to do after the resurrection. And I think that what's implied here is that even if they saw that, they still wouldn't believe. That it doesn't matter what they see, they're not in a place where they are willing to believe. He says, I'm speaking to you the words of life. The flesh, these physical things, that's not what it's about. I'm speaking to you spiritual words, full of life. Believe in me, believe in my word, receive eternal life. That's what you need to do. But even if you saw me ascend to heaven, you guys aren't going to believe. And as he says, yet there are some of you who do not believe. Because none of this was a surprise for Jesus. For Jesus had known from the beginning which of them did not believe and who would betray him. Now just, you know, that's uh, plural or singular there. He knew those, multiple, who would not believe him and he knew the one who would betray him. He went on to say, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless the Father has enabled them. Jesus has got to a point here where he's just proclaiming the truth. And whether somebody is going to believe him or not, that is a matter of faith and trust in him. He's saying true things. He's giving them words of life. And the question is, how are they going to respond? And to a certain extent here, I think Jesus achieves his goal. Because it says, from this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. I actually think that's what Jesus was trying to do at this point. He was trying to actually say, who is here because they are believing and trusting me versus who's here for the bread? 
That's how he kicked off his little sermon here on this side of the lake, right? You guys have come to me because I fed you, not because you're interested in the signs and the miracles. And he goes through this whole thing and gets to this point where after speaking in metaphor, those that don't understand go. And now he's going to turn to his disciples, his closest guys, his twelve, to see where they are at with this. So, Jesus says, you do not want to leave too, do you? Jesus asked the twelve. And Simon Peter answered him, and give credit where credit's due. Peter speaks up a lot. He doesn't always get it right, but this time he nails it. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. This is it. Pete gets it here. He understands that the words that they've been hearing are indeed the words of life. He understands that it's about faith. We believe and know. In fact, he even understands that the reason they believe has led them to this knowledge that he is the Son of God. The problem with all these other guys is because they haven't believed, because they haven't trusted what he's saying, they haven't understood who he really is. But Peter here gets it. These are the words of life. We believe them and we now know that you are the Holy One, the Son of God. These words are so bang on, they're so on point that you would expect Jesus to commend him here. And I think that Jesus does, but in a way where he's still trying to reinforce this point that he's making the whole way through. Because Jesus replied, Have I not chosen you, the twelve? Yet one of you is a devil. He meant Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, who thought one of the twelve was later to betray him. So, Jesus here is saying, Peter, listen, I've, I've heard your words, and he's putting the emphasis there back on the fact that I've, I've chosen you. And he talks about those who he's, the Father is enabling to hear and all that sort of stuff. I, I think he's saying, Peter, you're on the right track, but just remember, this is part of the fact that I've chosen you. The reason that you're here is because I've chosen you. Now, There's two sorts of choosing going on here, right? Jesus chose the 12 guys to be his followers. One of them would betray him. But those who are going to believe are the ones that the Father has chosen and enabled to believe in him. Now, this is an interesting conversation and, and because it's a little bit like that opening uh, scene to The Social Network uh, where you've got Jesse Eisenberg and he's sitting down with that girl in the, the cafe and they're sort of having this conversation but they keep on seeming to to talk at things on the wrong beat and the off beat. And I know that's what's kind of happening here with this conversation with Jesus. It, it, it sort of feels like they say one thing, Jesus says something else, and they're kind of related, but it doesn't match. But I, but I hope you're sort of seeing where this conversation has gone now. Jesus starts off speaking super clearly, but when people are not responding in faith, rather than try and argue them into it, He simply says, I understand what's going on here. Unless the Father draws you near, you're not going to get it. So he doubles down on the metaphor so that all there that aren't there for the right reasons are going to step away. So, what does that mean for us? Right? A lot going on, but but what does that look like for us? Well, the first first, first thing is the same thing as last week, but I want to say it in a different way. Okay? So last week we said, talking about the bread of life, right? If you are a, a, a non-believer, or, and you're here today, or if you're watching online and you're checking out this Christianity thing, the overwhelming message of this passage, which I really, 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 really hope you're hearing, 
is believe in Jesus and have eternal life. That, that, that's what Jesus is saying to these guys. This is the call of the gospel. All those who ate the manna, who ate the bread in the desert, they still died. Death is the big human problem. It's the, the train that we are all inevitably on heading towards that cliff unless we believe in Jesus and we get off that train and we feed on the bread of life to mix metaphors. And we know life in Him. And if you're here and you're not believing this and you're listening to it, this is what I want to say, okay? Note what these guys do in the passage, okay? They grumble and complain and they hear Jesus' words with negativity and doubt and murmuring. And as a result, they miss the truth of what He's saying. And this is the thing. If you're trying to figure out this Jesus thing, but you're still doubting, you're still not sure... This is going to sound really oversimplistic, but you've actually got to be willing for something to possibly be true in order to give it a chance to find out if something's true or not. Like if you're just coming in and you're just like, there's no way this is true and I just want to confirm my bias, then you're going to hear the words of life and they're going to remain dead to you. I had a lecturer in university, taught like stuff from the Bible as part of his English literature course, knew the, the Bible, read the Bible, but never approached them with faith, and so those words meant nothing to him. And if you're checking this thing out, you've at least got to open up your heart and say, am I giving this a real chance? Do I actually, am I coming to this with a willingness to, to check and believe, is this really true? Could this be true? Because Jesus' words is stop groaning and stop complaining and realize that I am the bread of life. The bread is my flesh and I will give my life for the world. And ultimately, that's what we put our faith in. It's the resurrection of Jesus. The truth of Jesus' words in this is confirmed by the fact that he died and rose again and that's the ultimate proof that indeed he is the bread of life. But if you come to this without faith, without even a willingness to accept and acknowledge this could be true, these will be dead words. But, for our uh, Christian brothers and sisters here, I want to think uh, briefly about the warning I think this passage has for us to not be complainers and grumblers. Now, let's set this up for us a little bit theologically, okay? Whoever the Father enables okay, to come and believe in Jesus, right, which I, with all my heart, believe that most of the people here in this room, okay, we also read that Jesus says that he's not going to lose any of those who the Father draws near to him. So when we think about Christians grumbling and complaining, we don't normally think about it in terms of you know turning our backs on Jesus. Now, just because you're in church, just because you're a member at church, just because you have a title, that doesn't mean that you definitely are believing in Jesus, because, you know, Judas, one of the twelve, so we can't simply take our presence here at church as evidence that we're good with God. But if we are believing sincerely, the promise of Scripture to us is that Jesus will not let us be lost. But that doesn't mean that grumbling and complaining isn't still a dangerous thing for us to do. And I've been thinking about it a lot this week, right? Can, can you complain or murmur in a godly way? Like, is that a thing? Is that a category? And see, because... What we see here, this, this murmuring, the grumbling, the complaining that these guys are doing, it's not lament, like it's not grief, it's not expressing 
anger or how you're feeling. That's a different thing. We see that in the Psalms. There's really healthy ways to express how we are feeling about stuff. And it's not being honest about a situation where there are negative things that we need to recognize in order to try and fix some sort of problem. That's not complaining or grumbling either. Alright? Those are helpful things that we need to do to get to the right place. And I'd even say that when something bad happens, a certain degree of like, you know, talking about it and expressing your dissatisfaction and your unhappiness and that sort of thing and being self-aware enough to say, okay, we can't stay in this place. We need to move on to something constructive. That's, I don't think, what's on view here either. In fact, there's even some evidence that suggests that a little bit of grumbling, okay, in order to get sympathy from people for the situation that you find yourself in, that can be a constructive thing because it, it gives you the sense that people care. Like, that. that's not a bad thing. So some... Complaining in that sort of sense could be okay. But that's not what's going on here. This is grumbling and complaining and murmuring. This is like, this is, this is that whispered, withdrawn talk. This is that, I can't believe, you know, do you know what, eat my flesh? Like, what is this guy talking about? And, and what happens is, it, it, it results in two things in this passage. One, they get angry about what's happening. And then it leaves leads them towards turning their back on Jesus. Now, like I said, I don't think that's the danger for us as Christians, but you know what? It can still cause us to get angry, which is destructive when done wrong. And it can still cause us to withdraw away from God if he's the one that we're complaining about, or certainly the people of God and the relationships that we find ourselves in. And I think that in our lives here on the Central Coast, that complaining and grumbling is, is kind of a particular challenge for us, and I'll tell you why. It's because we have good lives. In fact, many of us are here on the Central Coast because we came for a better life or a good life. Central Coast has got all sorts of advantages, right? Cheaper than Sydney. You can get a bigger place here. It's a good place to raise a family. It's cheaper than Sydney. You know, you can uh, do all sorts of things here that you can't do in Sydney. Like, there's... People are here on the coast, and even if it's not you, you're surrounded by people who have made choices along these lines because they're looking for the good, comfortable, convenient life and all that stuff that we talked about last week, like the bread, the good things that Jesus gives us that are good gifts, but not the ultimate thing we're meant to be focused on. And in this passage, these guys don't get the bread that they want. They don't like the thing that they're hearing, and they start to grumble and complain. And in a culture around us where people are grumbling and complaining and lots of negativity and that sort of stuff lots of the time, if we're not careful to go the other way and remember that Jesus is the bread of life and to be thankful for what he gives us and to keep our eyes fixed on him and feeding on him, then that negativity can start to have an effect on us. We have to be actively going against it to be thankful for Jesus and what he gives us. And so I want to encourage all of you guys, don't don't buy into the murmuring and complaining life. Don't don't buy into the idea that that, that that's the way to respond when things don't go our way, to get together in, in little quiet corners and talk and chat and all that sort of stuff and, and, and to feed each other's negativity, but rather 
Let's seek to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, the bread of life, to keep feeding on him, to remember everything that we have in him, to respond with faith to the message that he gives us, to not be disgruntled when we don't get the bread that we're looking for, because we always have the bread of life to feed upon. It's great news. It's a good message. It's the best, it's the best thing for us to focus on. And again, I'm not saying there's not times to have express negative things and to be angry and be upset and talk about that still, that sort of thing. That's not what I'm talking about. But that's a different thing from complaining and murmuring and grumbling and that sort of stuff. Alright. Let's uh, finish up there. We're going to pray and then we're going to get the music team back up here to respond to God in song. Father God, thank you so much for sending Jesus into this world. Thank you that he is the bread of life. Thank you, Lord, that he declared these words clearly to us. We pray, Father, that we would receive them in faith. We pray, Father, for anyone here today, for anyone listening online, watching online, who might be wrestling with this stuff, we pray, Lord, that you would give them the gift of faith. Lord, it's not our job to decide whether you are enabling us or not. It's our job to believe. And so, Lord, help us to come to you and your words of life with faith so we might believe and be given the gift of eternal life. And for those of us who are following you, who love you, help us, Lord, not to fall into the trap of complaining and murmuring and grumbling about the things that we don't like in our life. Help us, Lord, to find positive and healthy ways to express that dissatisfaction and frustration and anger and all that stuff. But, Lord, may we not become murmurers and quiet whisperers, complaining instead of bringing these things to you and bringing these things out into the open with your people. And as we do this, Father, may we become more and more like you, living for your glory and declaring with Peter that you have the words of life and that there is nowhere else that we will go. You are the Holy One of God, and we thank you for it. In Jesus' precious name, amen.